Our reading today is from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. In the 40 plus years that I've been preaching, I've found that for sermons on Christmas Eve and Easter Sunday, no matter how much advanced planning I do, I must wait for inspiration in the last 24 to 48 hours leading up to the service. The reason is not so much that the congregation will be larger than normal, giving me the pleasure of seeing most of our members in one place at one time, which is great. Rather, what leads me to wait for this last day inspiration is my awareness of the expectation that people bring to these two services. People attend worship on Christmas Eve because they want to experience beauty. They attend on Easter because they want to experience hope. These two simple but crucial expectations are such a part of the air that all of the advanced preparation goes for naught if it doesn't in some way speak from a beauty or hope that worship leaders experience or more importantly to the beauty or hope that lies at the heart of our faith that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried and on the third day rose again from the dead. It is the beauty and hope contained within the events behind these words that draw us here today. All week long, I've been drawn to an article I read a few weeks ago that has kept making its way into my mind. The article is entitled, The Missing Delight. It's by a historian at Catholic University named Michael Kimmage whom some of you may know. 
I see connections between the delight to which Kimmage points and the hope to which two women named Mary are driven when they encounter the resurrection of, of Christ and fall at his feet in worship. Let us pray. Lord, on this beautiful and hopeful Easter day, Speak to me that I may teach the precious things thou dost impart and wing my words that they may reach the hidden depths of many a heart. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So Kimmage points out that delight is a Latinate word whose, whose root means to lure or entice. Over time, it came to mean to please or charm, much like ice cream does for a child or a sunset for a couple on a romantic getaway. From delight, we get such words as delicious, delicate, lace, illicit, and dilettante. Kimmage says that delight is not the subject of high art, but more medium or even lowbrow efforts. Delight is found in comedy and satire and parody. Delight is Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, with their mixture of characterization and humor, of playful exposure of the hypocrisy of priests and nuns and other religious types, as well as the sexual banter among the pilgrims. Delight is Dickens rather than Upton Sinclair, though both expose the heaviness of grinding poverty. Delight is jazz rather than classical music. It is the Chrysler building in New York rather than St. Peter's Basilica or Notre Dame. It is Mel Brooks's blazing saddles, satirizing frontier violence with man striking horse, and Jonathan Swift's modest proposal satirizing insensitivity on the part of the British government to abject childhood poverty and starvation in 18th century Ireland. I would add that we experience delight through sports, which so often in our nation go back and forth between exposing our racial divides, bringing us together in the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat, returning us to our separate corners as soon as the game is over, and sometimes bringing us back and holding us together long after we have forgotten the final score. It has been much more delightful in the last couple of weeks to watch the back and forth between Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark than the acrimony growing out of the legislature in my own home state. It may be the case that we come to worship on Easter Sunday in search of delight. In times not too long ago, we could be delighted by girls in new Easter dresses and boys in jackets and bow ties, by Easter egg hunts on the church lawn, by women's hats springing up in the sanctuary like daffodils. Many of us, most of the time, would be satisfied for any 
touch of delight in our lives. A good laugh, an ice cream cone, a beautiful sunset. Delight is never to be minimized. And don't join a church which in its heritage says you're not supposed to have any delight. You won't get that here. That's a pitch. (laughs) But when we read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, it is not simply delight that those who hear the good news or encounter the risen Christ experience. Much more is going on in this event than simple delight. Now, if we were to read the Gospels ourselves, fresh, without knowing the ending, we might approach the story before us today in which Mary goes to the tomb, which two Marys go to the tomb, with different expectations than these two Marys who come to the tomb seem to have. In all four Gospels, since we're reading along, not knowing the ending, we can add up the number of times that Jesus actually predicts that he will be put to death and after three days be raised from the dead. It's three times in the Gospel of Mark. It's four times in the Gospel of Matthew. It's once in the Gospel of Luke. And it's several times, most often implicitly, in the Gospel of John. You can't miss these predictions if you're reading carefully. A typical example is Matthew 6.21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It is central to Jesus' teaching. That not only will he be put to death, a prediction that his followers have a hard enough time believing, but also that he will be raised on the third day. Though he plainly shares this with his disciples, that this is his fate and his purpose, neither they nor those close to him seem to get it. Thus, when the women journey to the tomb on Easter morning, they seem to be expecting a funeral, not a festival. Mourning, not dancing. Yet when they arrive at the tomb, they experience something quite different. There is a sudden earthquake. An angel of the Lord descends from heaven and rolls back the stone in front of the tomb and sits on it. Guards shake and quake and become like dead men. Then the stone-sitting angel says to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he's not here. For he has been raised, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. The women do leave the tomb quickly. But they leave with fear and with great joy. And they run to tell his disciples. When Jesus suddenly meets them along the way and greets them, they come up to him 
They bow down. They hold his feet. And they worship him. They worship. We can join the women in their moment of delight. But there is something greater than delight that's going on here. Fall down. Rejoice. Worship. This is more than comic reversal. This is more than a beautiful sunset. This is more than pleasing music or playful architecture or the thrill of victory. The resurrection of Christ, which the women encounter, reaches out and encompasses all these human delights. But there is something more going on here. It involves worship. In fact, while our translation has Jesus meeting the women on the road by saying, Greetings. The word is better translated, thankfully, rejoice. Jesus greets the two women with a call to worship. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. In her monumental book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Christ, a book which has so impacted my thinking in the last few years, the Episcopal theologian Fleming Rutledge Labels the resurrection, listen carefully, as God's mighty trans-historical yes to the historically crucified. By this, she means that the death of Christ is an event that occurs within history. It is carried out by particular local officials, appointees of the Roman Empire, at a particular time, the first century, in a particular place, Jerusalem and its outskirts. The crucifixion grows out of a particular controversy between a faction of the Jewish minority that believes Jesus is the Messiah and a faction that does not. Because a claim to be Messiah is blasphemous according to Jewish law, and according to Leviticus, it is subject to the death penalty, local Jewish leaders who are opposed to Jesus desire that end. And they carry the day. But they do not have the power to impose the death penalty themselves. So they must go to the local Roman governmental officials and ask them to do it. Because these officials simply want this minority Jewish population to, to live over here quietly and to get along and to not cause trouble, they accede to this request. They grant the crucifixion, and they hope things will settle down. An arrest, a trial, a verdict, a sentence, and a crucifixion follow. It happens all the time. 
That's the death of Christ. A particular event within a particular time at a particular place in history. But Rutledge says that the resurrection which follows this originates from outside of history. It originates beyond history. It originates from the side of God, not from the human side. Thus she labels the resurrection transhistorical. It is transhistorical event that is planted within history. The only real way that we can respond to this event is from outside history. It is through worship. The two Marys come up to the risen Jesus. They bow. They take hold of his feet. And they worship him. They respond with more than delight. They respond with worship. Now, in his article, Michael Kimmage sees a difference between delight and worship. He points to Psalm 37 in the King James Version. So listen carefully. Fret not thyselves because of evildoers. Neither be thou envious against workers of iniquity. But delight thyself also in the Lord. And he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Kimmage says that delight thyself in is a synonym for worship. As such, worship is the opposite of the opening word of the psalm, fret. Indeed, to fret is to inhibit worship. Have you ever tried coming to worship and sitting through a sermon or an anthem or singing or praying when you're fretting? It's almost impossible. There have been known in history families to load themselves into the SUV and get halfway to church and turn around and go back because somebody in the family is on a campaign to fret. Furthermore, to fret because of evildoers. To fret because of evil. Real as it is. Understandable as it is to fret over it. Is a sure way of losing sight of God and of traveling further and further away from worship. How many people have left the church across the world simply because they are overwhelmed by evil in the world and they can't worship by contrast says the psalm to delight thyself in God to worship is the gate the path the goal to hope and to the action that grows out of hope. My friends, we know that the death and resurrection of Christ has not yet fully brought the end of evil within this world. We know that God's making all things right has not yet fully played out in history. 
But the promise of resurrection is that the evildoers and the workers of iniquity shall not have the last word. They shall, in fact, be cut down and wither, which is from another verse in the psalm we didn't read. This is why we need not fret. This is why we can worship. As we respond to the resurrection with worship, we can still find delight as we wait for the making right of all things. As we respond to the resurrection with worship, we can fret not. As we respond to the resurrection with worship, we can engage in serious moral reflection concerning things that can disturb us into numbness. As we respond to the resurrection with worship, we cross borders physical and psychological that wars impose upon people, sometimes going out to them and sometimes pulling them in, welcoming them to us. As we respond to the res- resurrection with worship, we move to take ourselves out of our tribal uniforms. As we respond to the resurrection with worship, we become a, success- a society much less intoxicated by our own particulars. And as we respond to the resurrection with worship, we develop to its fullest our sheer human capacities for empathy, for compromise, for patience, for calm. In other words, for living together in the world that God has created and the world to which God has come to make all things right. Fret not because of evildoers. Neither be thou envious against workers of iniquity. Come to the risen Christ. Bow down. Take hold of his feet and worship It is even more than delight, and it stays with us. It gives us strength for the long duration. Amen.